0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen. Just a couple things before we get into today's episode. I promise I won't keep badgering you guys about this, but the Patreon is now live. You can get to that from either altitudecrime.com at the Crime Clan Patreon link, or you can go to patreon.com altitudecrime. That is $5 a month, and you'll get a full-length episode, 10% off merchandise year-round, and ad-free regular episodes and additionally my very wonderful boyfriend actually just published a children's book. The name of the book is Cup Kayla and the Big Frosting Mess. It's really adorable and really well done. It's now live on Amazon for Kindle and a paperback will be coming soon. If you go to altitudecrime.com shop at the bottom of the page you'll see a section that's cool stuff from cool people and there's a link to the book there if you're interested in checking it out, I highly recommend it. It's really beautifully done and we're really excited for it to be coming out, so definitely check it out. So today's episode is a big one. We are actually covering the case that ended in the first conviction in Colorado from genetic genealogy. So let's go ahead and get into it. Helene Pruszynski was born on April 6, 1958, in South Huntington on Long Island. Her mom and dad were Henrietta and Chester, and Chester was an engineer and Army veteran. Helene had two older siblings, Janet, who was nine years older, and Chet, who was 12 years older. At an early age, she took a liking to baseball and specifically the New York Mets. But her team would change when the family moved in 1972 to Hamilton, Massachusetts. Her dad had got a new job that had the family relocate to the town just northeast of Boston that at the time had a population of about 7,000 people. The move changed Helene's baseball team to the Boston Red Sox. In high school... Helene took part in music and theater and would go on to join an acapella group called the Wheat Tones when she got to college. She studied journalism at Wheaton College and at 21 years old was selected for an internship that she was extremely excited about. Both she and her classmate kitty Snow ended up moving to Denver for the internship. She wanted to be a journalist, and this internship was at the news department at the KHOW radio station. The day before her disappearance, Helene covered an incredibly big story. They covered an incident in which a Secret Service agent was shot inside the Denver Secret Service field office. On January 16, 1980, Helene finished her workday as normal at 5.30 p.m. and started her route home. The route was not unfamiliar at this point. She would walk two blocks to the RTD stop and get a bus to Inglewood. She would then get off the bus at Union Avenue and Broadway, and then she would walk six blocks to where she was staying. Both she and Kitsy were staying with Helene's aunt and uncle. The commute took a little while, and she usually got home around 6.30 p.m., When she wasn't home around this time, Kitsy and Helene's aunt and uncle quickly began to look for her at the places she would have passed along the way. The radio station, the bus stop and along Broadway. When they didn't locate her, they called police. Four hours into Helene's disappearance at 1030 p.m., Officer Richard Welburn arrived at the home to file a missing persons report. This is some of the information that he took. That Helene had blue eyes, brown hair, was five foot tall and about a hundred pounds. She was wearing a green sweater with a white turtleneck underneath, tan corduroy style-ish pants, and a blue coat. The day would end without them locating Helene. On January 17th at 9 a.m., the morning after Helene disappeared, a woman and her 13-year-old son were driving in Douglas County on Daniels Park Road. The 13-year-old pointed out what looked like a body in a partially snow-covered field off of the road, and the woman driving the car pulled over. She ended up waving down a man operating a road grader and asked him to take a look in the field. He was able to confirm what the boy had seen, the body of a dead woman in the snow-covered field. And just as a side note, since this part of town has grown quite a bit since then, this field is now located in Highlands Ranch. The Douglas County Sheriff's Office and Colorado Bureau of Investigation, or CBI, responded to the scene. Helene was actually identified by an Arapahoe County Sheriff's Deputy who also came to the scene and he knew Helene. He worked part-time at the radio station with her. Vehicle tracks were found at the scene, as well as footprints. There was two sets of footprints leading to her body, presumably one of them being hers, and then one set returning to the location of the vehicle tracks. These footprints were made by a set of cowboy boots. Plaster casts were made of both the boot prints and the tire tracks. It was immediately clear that Helene had endured a gruesome death. Her hands were tied behind her back with nylon straps her clothes from the waist down were missing, and she had been sexually assaulted. She'd also been stabbed in the back nine times, and these stab wounds caused her lungs to collapse. Police actually got a semblance of a lead pretty early on in the investigation. A woman had called into police because she had been on Daniels Park Road around 10.20 p.m. the night of Helene's disappearance, and she had seen a man in the field where Helene's body was eventually found. And she was able to provide a pretty thorough description of the man. She said that it was a younger man between 20 to 30 years old, most likely white, with brown hair that was medium length and grew long enough to kind of flip over the top of his ears. She thought that he had a mustache and she was actually hypnotized at one point to bring forward more details and a sketch was made that was a lot more realistic than composites usually are. I mean, usually people just get a quick glance or can't recall much, so it's just a face shape and maybe one particular item about the face, but this was pretty realistic. Police also thought that Helene's murder could be involved with some other crimes that were going on in the area. A few weeks before Helene went missing, a woman was raped near the bus stop on Broadway where she would have gotten off to go home. And the night that Helene went missing, another woman had been approached and harassed by a man in the area. So police thought that all of these could have potentially been connected. The hardest part for investigators was the dynamic of this case, that it was most likely that Helene had been attacked and killed by a stranger. She'd only been in Colorado for two or three weeks, And didn't have a lot of acquaintances in the area yet. And as we know, it's a lot harder to track down a stranger than to connect someone to a murder that had a relationship with the victim and potentially a more clear motive. Investigators continued to work other angles in Helene's case. They looked into people who drove similar cars to what had been seen in the area of where Helene's body was found. And two other leads came up over the years because two different men confessed to her killing, but both were proven to be false confessions. One year after Helene's body was found, her case went cold, and it remained that way for almost 20 years. In 1998, the investigation into Helene's murder was reopened, and there was something new to look at at this point, DNA technology, something that wasn't available at the time of Helene's death. DNA had been found on both her body and in her body due to the sexual assault, and they were actually able to get a genetic profile from the evidence at the scene. But when this information was uploaded to CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System, it didn't give them any extra information. There was no one in the database that was a match. Helene's case would continue to be reopened throughout the years. Investigators looked at it again in 2000, 2005 2010 and 2013. In 2013 the DNA that was available was attached to eight possible female relatives of the killer but the trail went cold again there. In 2019 Douglas County Sheriff's investigator Shannon Jensen started down the path of genetic genealogy to try to track down Helene's killer. The DNA that police had from the crime scene was put into a genealogical database, and that came back with 3,000 hits. Now, a lot of these can be relatives in distant generations, which can confirm someone's lineage and identification later on, but it's not as important as trying to determine who the person is and those closer relatives. A distant cousin had a private family tree that Jensen needed, and they agreed to share that information publicly. So on a side note, this actually leads us to another podcast. So there's a podcast that is just fantastic called The Murder Squad, and it's hosted by Paul Holes, who is a retired cold case investigator. He spent 27 years in Contra Costa County, California, in both the sheriff and district attorney's office. And a task force he was on actually identified Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. And then the second host is Billy Jensen, who was a true crime journalist for 17 years. Men's Journal actually referred to him as the Facebook detective because he's used his digital savvy to help solve 10 homicides. He also helped to finish Michelle McNamara's book, "All Be Gone in the Dark, about the Golden State Killer. And if you're not familiar with this author... She passed away, but she was Patton Oswalt's wife. So actually one of their listeners named Jessie learned about genealogical databases from listening to their podcast. And she decided to submit her information and it turns out she was this distant cousin that investigator Jensen came across. So Douglas County law enforcement reached out to her to get help compiling this family tree and getting that information public and Jessie then had her parents put their DNA into this database as well and it turns out That the perpetrator was actually related on her dad's side. So this information helped narrow down information for investigators. So like I always say, our true crime community does some pretty amazing things, and this is exactly one of them. So way to go for the murder squad spreading that information and way to go for Jesse for getting that information out there and getting it public and helping out law enforcement. In this case, Joan Hanlon of United Data Connect, who was a genealogist, also helped with research. And they also worked with C.C. Moore at Parabon NanoLabs. We've talked about them before. They provide assistance to law enforcement with DNA technology, analysis, and genetic genealogy. So while they did narrow down this DNA information, it did lead them to a few different suspects. The first suspect was tailed and a water bottle that they threw out was tested and it was not a match. Next was a man with a history of being a sexual deviant. His name was William White Jr. and he ended up also not being a match. But this also meant they were interested in White's younger brother. His name was Curtis Allen White. He had moved to Colorado in 1979, but a few years prior to that in 1975 in Arkansas, He had been convicted of raping a woman at knife point. In this case, he asked the woman to use her phone and entered her home and then assaulted her in her bedroom. In 1982, he assumed a new identity and started going by James Curtis Clanton. In November of 2019, Clanton was in Florida, which is about 27 hours away from Inglewood, where Helene went missing. He was living in an area called Lake Butler, which is just north of Gainesville. Douglas County deputies went there and followed him around for a few days, trying to get some kind of discarded item that would have his DNA on it. Clanton ended up going to a bar and got a beer and poured it into a mug to drink it. And when he left, deputies took the mug and took this to the CBI to test. And it was a match. Clanton had never come up as a suspect any of the times that the case was reopened previously. Clanton was arrested on December eleventh, two thousand nineteen, around two p.m. He was a truck driver, and police tracked him down and approached him with a different story than what they knew. According to Kevin Vaughn's reporting for Nine News, Douglas County Sheriff Sergeant Attila Deans told him, "Quote: Your name came up initially as a suspect in a major securities fraud case out of Colorado. We're talking a multi-million dollar case. We started digging into the case." What we actually think happened is someone has assumed your identity back in Colorado." Unquote. They told them that they wanted to hear his side of the story. They actually used this ruse to get specific details about his life at the time of Helene's murder. That way he couldn't backtrack later and say he wasn't in the area or that he had a girlfriend or never knew Helene or whatever. It would lock him into specific details. After about an hour, they brought up the real reason that they were there and showed him a picture of Helene. He said he knew nothing about the murder and asked for an attorney. Police then told him that they found his DNA on her body and arrested him for kidnapping and first-degree murder. The following day, on December 12th, Clanton waived extradition and did not fight going to Colorado to face charges. And then he started to talk as soon as they started to drive to the airport. His confession was recorded during the ride as he admitted that he killed Helene and he knew that someday it would catch up with him. This confession happened just one month shy of the 40-year anniversary of Helene's disappearance. He continued to explain what happened on the flight and when he arrived in Colorado. Clanton told investigators that when Helene got off the bus that night, he approached her and told her that he had a knife and to go with him. And she did not fight and agreed. He then put her in the passenger door of his car and told her to get on the floorboard. It was at this point that he tied her hands. As they were driving, she asked what he was going to do. He told her he was going to kidnap her and ask for ransom money. But that was a lie. He took her to a woodshed and raped her. And then he drove her to Daniels Park Road to the field. He told her that she would have to walk home, but that she could not get up from the field until after he was gone. After this explanation, he stabbed her nine times. Clanton explained that he had been abandoned at an early age by his mother and went into the foster care system. And the home that he was placed in was actually the home of a pedophile. He explained that his entire life he had just been full of rage. He did, as most killers usually do, he started with the killing of small animals. It started first with putting insects into red ant piles to watch them be killed. Then he started killing amphibians. And then at the age of eight, he killed a cat in a pretty brutal way. You can refer to it in one of the articles that's on the website, but I'm not going to go into the details. When he was convicted in the 1975 rape case in Arkansas, he served four years and then was released on parole. A former counselor actually invited him to come live with his family. The man had counseled him at an Arkansas children's home called the Southern Christian Home, and he wanted to help him get back on his feet. So with Clinton having a place to go, he was paroled on March 6, 1979. This would be 20 years before sex offender registration laws would be active in Arkansas. The counselor that he went to live with lived in Littleton, Colorado, and that's how he ended up in the state. After living with the counselor for one year, he moved to Inglewood. Later on, Clanton would have two short marriages that both ended in divorce. In 1998, he was arrested under domestic violence charges. So you can see from his background, he certainly had an inclination to this type of crime. It took a while for Clanton to see the inside of a courtroom purely for the reason that there was some debate of if the death penalty should be applicable or not. It was taken off the table. And I am assuming most likely because of his confession in February, 2020, he pleaded guilty and his plea dropped three other counts of murder and a kidnapping charge. So he pled guilty to the first degree murder charge. If you're wondering, the statute of limitation on sexual assault had already passed, so he could not be charged with that. The case was then delayed again due to COVID-19 and sentencing didn't take place until July 1st, 2020. But everybody already knew what the sentence would be. The 63-year-old Clanton was getting life in prison. At the sentencing, Clanton had his attorney read an apology for him. And then Helene's family spoke and also played a slideshow with pictures from her life. Now I'm a little unclear on this because it gets mentioned briefly and I'm not sure of the nuances here, but for some reason, the laws that were in place in 1980 when this case happened are still applicable. So Clanton can actually apply for parole after serving 20 years of his sentence. While Helene's initial disappearance did not... The solving of her case drew nationwide media attention. After her death, Wheaton College did posthumously award Helene a diploma, and in 1980, her classmates from the college raised funds to create a leadership award and scholarship in her name. According to Wheaton College's article about these awards, her classmate Ellie Horlbeck Thompson, who was in the class of 81, said, quote, if you were walking across campus and past helene your day was made better by seeing her smile even if you didn't stop and talked with her her enthusiasm was infectious she was caring patient and wanted to help others unquote. this group created the helene prusinski leadership award which is given to seniors that show a commitment to campus community they also created the helene prusinski 80 scholarship which is given to a senior who typically has an English or biology major. In 2020, there was a fundraising effort to increase the amount of the scholarship. The endowment fund for the scholarship has surpassed $110,000, meaning it will benefit students for years to come. If you're interested in making a donation to this scholarship, I have put a link on altitudecrime.com in the source section for this episode. Okay, guys, I have lots of thoughts on this case, so bear with me. Musing number one. I always find it interesting when someone who is in law enforcement finds a victim who they know. So we know that there was an Arapahoe County Sheriff officer that showed up to the scene that actually knew Helene from working with her at the radio station. And that's got to be such an incredible shock Because there is that point where, unfortunately, that's a part of the job. But I would expect that you don't go into those situations expecting to see someone that you know. Musing number two. I was a little intrigued to find that the woman who had seen the man in the field was put under hypnosis to help bring some of the details forward. I did not realize that it was something still being used in 1980. I thought that was a little bit older. So that was new information for me. Musing number three. Speaking of the hypnosis, the composite that was created was spot on, like it was exactly Clanton. So with this said, I do want to say always be aware. I mean, here, this information didn't cause a break in Helene's case right away, But it was something that was able to be used as a confirmation piece. So always be aware when you're out and about. If you're seeing something odd, if somebody strikes you, like take that mental picture and try to have that information in your brain. You never know when it might come up. Musing number four. And I've said this in other cases, but it still just to this day just amazes me of how thorough these pre-DNA investigations were. Like for them to have DNA to then go back to when they didn't even know that was going to be something that was going to be a thing is just amazing to me. So I have to really applaud these pre-DNA investigations that got that kind of genetic material that then is used later on. i using number five. Now we've talked about genetic genealogy a lot and i just think it's so interesting because it's something that the public opened up to i mean people sit in dna just to trace their ancestry when that boom kind of happened nobody nobody thought it would be connected to crime investigations that was just something that wasn't in the realm so really if there would not been this trend of wanting to find out your ancestry and these companies that were kind of taking hold of that science to basically profit off of it, we wouldn't have this avenue of crime investigation. And it, it's just so interesting to me. I'm using number six. So I just wanted to touch on, so Helene's case is the first case in Colorado to get a conviction from genetic genealogy, but it's not the first for it to be used in. It was used to solve the 1987 killing of Darlene Krashuk, and Michael White is her accused murderer. I've not yet uh, gone into this case, but I believe that's still going through the court system. And it was also used in solving the murder of Tangi Sims in 1996. And the killer in this case was Wesley Backman, who has since died. So it's Helene's case that's actually had a conviction come out of it. And if you're wondering, I am planning on covering these other cases in another episode. Musing number seven. This case also brings up something that I have talked about in a few episodes, probably most specifically in the Candace Newmaker episode, but the work that still needs to be done in the foster care system. And I try to not judge too harshly on how this system works because... There is such a huge influx of children that need placement and need homes and need care. It's a pretty burdened system, but it is by no means a perfect system. And you do hear oftentimes people who have had pretty horrendous lives in the foster care system that then go on to do things like this. And I'm not blaming just the foster care system alone because there could be some predisposition or whatever happens to make you a murderer. But we do hear this come up often, and it is just a short reflection on that that system is not working. And while I don't have the answers, I think it's something that we need to look farther into. Musing number eight. I will give Clanton props for one thing, for the fact that he confessed. Can you imagine what our system would not be bogged down with if when a murderer was caught they just were like, yep, I did it, let's get on with this. The amount of time and emotional strain and tax dollars and everything else, if, pe- if more murderers were like him. I'm not saying that he's a good guy by any means, but I do applaud that he owned up to what he did and he's now serving his time. I'm using number nine. So I talked about a little bit earlier in talking about Clanton's background about that he obviously had some inclination to this type of crime, and it also echoes why I cover domestic violence cases, because I feel like that's often an underlier to a larger issue and many times an underlier to a murder or something like this happening. I think it's kind of one of those gateways, and as we can see, he did get a charge for domestic violence in addition to what would end up becoming a murder charge. So I think these two are oftentimes more related than we think. Musing number 10. Man, what a life Helene could have lived. So when her case was finally solved, her sister Janet was 70 years old. I mean, at this point, Helene would have lived a long fulfilled life. And that's something I like have goosebumps talking about it because it... You know, it's one thing when cases get solved right away, it's still sad, you still pine for that life that person could have had, but when it goes this long, and to think about the age that she would have been now, and all the things that she could have done at this point, it's just heartbreaking. Using number 11. So Helene's murder happened at a time when women were still kind of told not to resist when they were in a situation like this, that... It was going to be worse for them, just do what they were told, and, you know, they'd get raped and then get to go home, or whatever the thought was behind that. Well, we know better now, and I'm going to say right now, resist like hell. I knew someone years ago that was in the military and had talked about some training he'd done that, you know, they had said that the best hostage is an uncooperative hostage, that just fight like hell. And there's a a part in a Patricia Cornwell novel that has always stuck out to me. And this I read this really as I started getting into true crime. This was years and years and years ago. So if you're unfamiliar with Patricia Cornwell, you've been living under a rock, first of all. But she was a crime reporter and then went on to work at the Virginia Office of the Medical Examiner, and she then turned into a novelist. And she's got some great series. Uh, She did an amazing book uh, that basically tracks her thought on who Jack the Ripper is that is just amazing Um, but she has a collection that is the Scarpetta collection and it covers this female I believe FBI agent I haven't read the books in a long time but it's it's all these different books of like this woman and her career and there's a specific book where they're talking to this like really terrible serial killer and they're like you know asking him about his crimes and whatever and He's talking about a woman that he took, you know, and it's like he he just tortures, brutally tortures and kills these victims in his books, but he's talking to this main character who's a female, and he's saying, basically, like, if I came up to you and told you to get in the car or else I'd kill you, like, what would you do? And she's like, I'd let you kill me. And he basically tells her, like, good job, like, good choice, because... You know, the alternative is like he was he would take her and do these terrible, terrible things to her. So an awful ultimatum that I'm talking about. But the that's always struck me because it's like in a situation like that, you give up so much power. You, there's a potential to give up your life either way. But keep that power if you can. And if that's the difference of someone backing off or someone thinking you're too much of a hassle to kidnap, you're too, much of, you're too loud, you're gonna draw too much attention, draw all the attention, do everything you can, fight like hell. Unfortunately, women were given the wrong advice for too long. If something seems off to you, if you think you're not in a right situation, if somebody bugs you, if somebody gets that little thing in your gut to go off, Listen to it. Always listen to it. Don't worry about being a jerk. Don't worry about coming across as impolite. Follow your gut. Always, always, always. Okay guys, sorry to rant there a little bit, but that's something that's obviously been in my brain for a long time and I've never vocalized it, so there we go. But that is the end of today's episode. So as always, you can get me on social media. You can find me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast, Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Patreon is either at the website or patreon.com/altitudecrime. Please 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 follow or subscribe. We're still building our crime clan and following or subscribing helps others find the podcast. And if you're one of my wonderful YouTube listeners, go ahead and hit the bell icon and subscribe there as well. Sources for this episode can be found at altitudecrime.com. And also on there, if you go to the shop link, you can find the link to Cup Kayla and the Big Frosting Mess down at the bottom of that shop page. Well, thank you as always for spending part of your week with me, and I will talk to you next Sunday on Altitude Crime. Episode 55, The Murderer of Helene Pruszynski, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.